Hello, this is the Lend Hoping Nothing podcast. I'm Michael Humphreys, and I'm happy to be talking to you today. This is episode five, and we're going to discuss why usury is important. In the previous episodes, episodes one, two, and four, I kind of laid the groundwork for what usury is and why it is evil. So now with that kind of groundwork in place, I kind of want to start discussing why I think usury is important. So I think there are three main sections or or areas that usury is particularly important. One is the practical, two is the theoretical, and three is the theological. So jumping into the practical. So I discussed with someone a while back about usury and one of the things that came up is, well, why is usury important? And uh, he noted that usury maybe isn't as important as other sins because there are not many usurers out there. Not a lot of people are actually lending. Uh, and so there's only a few people who are actually committing the sin of usury, or relatively few. But I think on the flip side of that, there are quite a few people who are suffering from usury. In fact, almost everyone is suffering from usury. So in our prior episode, episode two, we discussed how the mutuum contract is um, the source and origin of usury. So it's that uh, material component of the sin of usury. And so we discussed how that is a personally secured loan. So what personally secured loans do we see in our economy today? Well, we have credit cards, payday loans, student loans, car loans, and most mortgages. Some states require um, mortgages to be fully secured by the actual house or property, but most states still allow for what are known as full recourse loans, which are personally secured so with this broad array of personally secured loans in, in the modern economy, really almost everyone is suffering from some sort of usurious debt. And so what we see here from usurious debt is the impoverishment, impoverishment of people. They have to basically put themselves up as security on the debt and in a sense sell themselves. And so we see this in particular, or some of the problems of this in particular in the uh, student loan debates and uh, about student loan forgiveness, because people are coming right out of college, and not only can they not really afford the loans that they've had to take out, they can barely afford the minimum payments. And so, you know, there were videos going around last year of people talking about, you know, I've been paying my student debt for uh, 10 years or something, and my principal has not gone down. So that is a type of impoverish impoverishment of people. And so that quite obviously leads to a lot of civil strife or a lot of civil unrest, because people are suffering from this and they can't get out of it. And so they have to do something about it. The other side of it is that 
it also leads to potentially a hatred and undermining of certain institutions. Uh, and the example here is universities, because universities not only rely on usurious debt, but they also contract usurious debt. So you can get student loans from the government, but you can also get it from the university itself. And so that, uh, that puts people in quite a difficult situation, and it puts them in a very adversarial position with the university. And given the injustice of usury, um, you know, people are not going to start liking universities. The other kind of factor here, and it's related to that, is that it, it's a destabilizing force in the economy. So as we noted in the last episode, episode four, Aquinas talks about usury as selling what does not exist. And so here we see that usury is, in a sense, a sort of fake wealth, because financially, people will estimate this value in some way, and they'll put it on the balance sheet as if it were an asset, like a real piece of property. But in reality, it's it's not a real asset because you can't own a person in the sense of, um, you know, property. And so this this can have a destabilizing force because essentially peop- companies think they have more assets than they actually do because at the end of the day, you can't sell a person who defaults. So there are, there are ways to, to manage that risk with risk with default and things like that but um it it gets a little bit more tenuous than it would with an actual piece of property and so it can lead to some bad risk management uh, at least in my estimation and there is some reason to believe for example that the 2008 financial crisis was at least partly driven by uh, usurious debt so a lot of the the mortgages, as we discussed before, are usurious, and certainly the subprime mortgages were often usurious as well. And so when uh, subprime uh, mortgages were starting to uh, default, um, you know, it got bad pretty quick. So there's that element of the instability that it brings to the economy. And part of it is that it also impoverishes the economy in general because since these debts are not real wealth, you're not really investing in real property. You are uh, just kind of taking money from the people, uh, the borrowers, rather than what would be more um, more fruitful and more developing to the economy would be actually putting that money into in real investments with real property that is going to generate real goods. So in that sense, it also at least relatively impoverishes the economy. So we could have more prosperity than we do, and more people could be more prosperous. One thing I want to touch on here, though, is some of the implications of enforcing usury. And this can become important because, you know, people might want to say, well, 
you know, ban all use three immediately. And so it might, uh, but we need to think through the implications of that immediate, of that sort of action. So one of the things kind of related to what I just mentioned is that it would create a healthier and more um, balanced economy that is less reliant on this kind of fake wealth because you would be, um, your investments would be based on real property and real assets rather than uh, these usurious loans that are grounded in people instead. And also, even if we removed all usurious loans, pretty much all business credit would still be in place. So, you know, the uh, corporate bond market is massive. It's, um, I think it's in the tens of trillions of dollars, if not bigger than that. <clears throat> but also, it would include all sorts of other um, financing and credit arrangements between businesses that that fully um, fully secure it with the with the business, or even unsecured um, business uh, loans like uh, commercial paper. But uh, some of the things that would go away would be a lot of consumer credit uh, would basically be gone. So think of like credit cards. So uh, that would have pretty serious impacts, for example, on retailers, since quite a few people tend to use uh, credit cards to to buy things or retailers. So in that sense, some of that consumption would, would be reduced as well. Um, the other kind of big thing would be universities, since re universities are very uh, reliant on, on student loans for tuition. And uh, this, this would be an interesting question, because uh, universities have really built up a lot of assets over time, such as classroom space and uh, dorms and such, to uh, basically provide that education to more people. But if you eliminated student loans, you would have, you would eliminate a huge portion of people who could even attend university. Maybe there's some ways to kind of work that out to have it more uh, based on some sort of asset. So you put up some sort of collateral on these loans, but it would be, it would certainly decrease the number in a, in a significant way. So there would be a lot of unused property and a lot of uh, tuition that was um, lost. So it would probably bring down some of the smaller universities and potentially um, some of the larger universities, depending on you know endowments and how, how they could afford that. So there, there are some secondary effects to uh, enforcing sort of a usury law that that's worth considering. So the next area is kind of theoretical, and I want to touch on two different points here, one that I understand better than the other, but the first would be sort of the impact to economic theory. So uh, the way that usury is typically understood from an economic or financial perspective is with respect to time value of money or opportunity costs, risk premiums, and, and all of that type of thinking. And these are related to uh, different 
um, extrinsic titles in some ways uh, that the late scholastics developed. Uh, I'll talk about that some other time, but I think there is a, a lot to disagree with there. But what usury does in those cases is it doesn't necessarily invalidate those economic concepts, but it, it limits their scope. So Mary Hirschfield and her book, Aquinas and the Market, kind of proposes this Machiavellian dilemma where there's this kind of conflict between economics and theology. And the question is, uh, you know, who, what position should each be in? Should economics be over theology, theology over economics? Uh, should they have, you know, separate areas of influence? But her Machiavellian dilemma was really this challenge to be able to understand the success of current economic thinking in light of theological revelation and development. So here I think usury is a good example of how uh, we're able to kind of get through that and, and succeed with that, that Machiavellian dilemma. So because it doesn't invalidate the, the economic theories, but it, it corrects and limits their scope. So taking the example of time value of money, so time value of money is a is an abstract mathematical way of measuring the value of some sort of productive property. So that was a, a word. So if you think about it, if you have some sort of productive property, say like an apple tree. Now an apple tree is going to generate apples, and each of those apples you're going to be able to sell and has a certain value associated with it. So the question is, well, how do I value the apple tree in light of that productive capacity? And so there's a whole theory on, on how you um, take all those apples, you know, you, you consider all the future apples that it might generate, their value, and then you essentially discount them um, back to today. So um, the idea here is that, you know, money or some good present today is more valuable than something in the future. And so you have to find some way of determining how much value there is in those future apples, and then consider then how much the tree is worth in light of that. So the issue here, though, is that oftentimes... Uh, What is seen as valuable are the future apples, which don't exist, rather than the tree, which is generating those apples. The tree, which really does exist, has the power to generate those apples, and what you're really valuing is that apple. So you're trying to put a price, or that tree, you're trying to put a price tag on the tree, not the future apples. Uh, Thomas Wood had a... um, a kind of insulting question about this where he was he was like if you don't if you think usury is still in force um tell me the value of of an apple it wasn't exactly that phrasing but uh, he's he was thinking along these lines uh explain to me the value of this future apple and why it's uh worth less why it's not worth less tomorrow than today and the the point is that it's the tree that has the value, not the apple. 
So, uh, and you can apply this to many different things. So, uh, you know, farmland, uh, factories, you know, companies that are generating cash over time. Uh, in in the case of finance, different financial contracts, and so forth. And so all of these are really grounded in something that exists today and is some sort of real property. So you have real farmland that's generating stuff. You have um, some sort of real property that's going to be generating the cash flows. Um, you have a company that has assets that are being quote-unquote farmed. But in the case of the mutuum, this personally secured loan, there is no productive property to generate things. You have a person who will be making the payments, but the person is not productive property that you can perform this sort of valuation on. And applying this sort of thinking kind of helps us get back to that idea of usury as a sort of uh, slavery, because you're trying to treat this person as some sort of economic entity that you can, you know, buy and sell and rent and have some sort of claim over. But because there is no productive property that you're actually valuing, there is no future generation that you're trying to, to get back to. So when you get back what you paid, you got all that you are owed. And so, you know, what we see here is that limiting of this concept of the time value of money. It doesn't apply to the mutuum because the mutuum is based in a person who is not productive property. And you can apply this as well, as well to, to other economic concepts and why they don't necessarily apply to the, the mutuum contract. So that, that's kind of the economic theory side. The other side is the legal theory. And this I admittedly don't understand as well. But I, I did have a, a brief discussion with a, a law professor uh, online. And so what, what the mutuum, what usury helps us move back to is a legal theory of contracts that is more grounded in property. And this moves us back to a more classical uh, legal theory. Uh, so, but understanding usury in this way helps us move back to a sort of classical understanding of contracts in the sense of, of being grounded in uh, property. Uh, and I've seen this in particular in some of the, the legal language around insurance contracts and things like that, where... For example, an insurance contract is treated or discussed as a transfer of risk. And really, there is no possibility of transferring risk while retaining the property. I, you know, I can get into this in more detail some other time, but really what's happening in insurance contracts is you're selling a claim against some sort of property that secures the, the insurance. So sort of this risk transfer is a little muddled at least. It's maybe metaphorical or a, a, an analogy because an insurer does take on risk in entering this contract, but you take on risk on entering pretty much any contract. But returning to maybe this classical idea that's based in 
property, you start thinking about these contracts, not in terms of transfer of risk, but, you know, a sale of uh, a claim against some property instead. And that helps clarify um, what's actually going on in our thinking, as with the, the economic theory. So I think both these theoretical components are, help clarify the way that we, how we think about economics and how we think about contracts. Because then that's going to influence the way we think about other contracts and how other contracts are uh, moral or not. <clears throat> but let's kind of move into the, the theological. So there are there's a few different areas here that I think usury is important in, three particular. So the reintegration of dogmatic and moral theology, the reaffirmation of John Paul's teaching going back, uh, through the tradition that the moral dimension of an act is in light of its moral object. And then finally, a reaffirmation of the dignity of the human person. So the first one, the reintegration of dogmatic and moral theology. So right now we're going through a definite crisis of uh, dogmatic and moral theology. So people are just outright denying some teachings. Uh, the whole hermeneutic of, of rupture is is kind of coming up again, um, such that people will just say, well, you know, those old councils or those old declarations are not relevant today. And you have high churchmen saying uh, certain things in moral theology that there really is no moral dogmas, there's no moral doctrines. It's all based on the current cultural and historical circumstances. So, what was taught, um, you know, 500 years ago regarding usury is no longer relevant today. But not just usury, but any moral teaching, whether it's has to do with sexual ethics or euthanasia or anything of the sort. So there's a different, definite disintegration of dogmatic and moral theology. And one book that discusses this really well is uh, Livio Molina's uh, Sharing in Christ's Virtue, um, and also Veritatis Splendor talks about this sort of um, breakdown in moral theology and fundamental moral theology. And so usury really reintegrates these, because usury, from the dogmatic theology perspective, has been firmly um, taught since the earliest times, so that all the church fathers condemn usury. Uh, it's been condemned by multiple councils. Uh, the Council of Vienna explicitly condemns those who teach that usury is not uh, a sin as heretics. Uh, Vix Pervena clearly lays out that teaching once again. And even recent popes have reaffirmed uh, at least the evil of usury, if not um, help to clarify what it is. And the, the recent catechism, again, while not helping us understand what usury is, does uh, condemn usury. But it, it helps that reintegration, because usury is definitely a question of moral theology, but it's also a question of the... Um, consistency and coherence of the magisterium in dogmatic theology. 
So the second point here is the the affirmation of this uh, moral object and sort of this initial moral determination of uh, of an act, because one of the things that's currently a struggle and people really fail to understand oftentimes is the nature of the moral object. And I'm not a moral theologian. Uh, I, I've read enough moral theology to have hopefully a good understanding of this, but, you know, people oftentimes confuse the physical act with the moral object. So there's, you know, the physical act of amputating your leg, but there's the moral object of whether you're, um, you know, trying to remove a disease or trying to mutilate yourself. So one of those is moral and one of those is not. So here usury properly understood reaffirms this moral object because and especially properly understood because uh, because a lot of the differences in how usury is understood can oftentimes confuse the moral object and that the moral object isn't necessarily related to the act itself but something else so when we talk about usury as the sort of oppression of the poor, um, you know, it becomes less about the the moral object of what you're doing. You're contracting a loan with someone, and it becomes conditionally dependent on the the status of another person. Or Belloc's theory, where usury is in contracts where the the money lent is used for either productive or consumptive purposes. But that purpose is extrinsic to the contract. So the the borrower who either goes to buy machinery or goes to buy a sandwich, what they do after the loan is something extrinsic to the act itself. And so it's not really the moral object. So the moral object of usury is exacting or obligating profit from a personally secured loan. And so that is a clear and specific type of moral act that people choose. And so usury helps to reaffirm that because usury is intrinsically evil. It is evil from its object. So um, finally kind of getting into the reaffirmation of human dignity here. So we've kind of mentioned this a few times already that usury really involves a sort of property claim against a person where you're treating them as chattel or, you know, some sort of property that you can rent. And so reaffirming the teaching um, that I just mentioned reaffirms the dignity of the human person that they can't be treated this way, that this is uh, a way that is beneath the dignity of a person. And, you know, we can look to John Paul and his reflections on that uh, to, to see how that's the implications of that reaffirmation. And so kind of getting to an example of this and how this impacts uh, the way we think about things. In the case of, of Hungary, there is a program where... Uh, they're trying to, 
you know, encourage people to have more children. And so there's a program where uh, people can take loans um, from the government, uh, which I believe are are um, provided by commercial banks, at least from the sounds of it. Um, and they can take out these loans if they agree to have uh, so many tr- children in uh such a period of time. I think it's like three children in five years or, or something around there. And so what usury, what thinking about usury does is it gets us thinking about, well, what are the obligations and what's the <laughs> the human dignity uh, here? So when we think about this type of contract, what's going on is you're agreeing to provide a claim to the government over your reproductive faculties. So the government has a claim that you that you produce children. And so that is, it seems to me, a claim against your your body. And it it seems contrary to human dignity. And the issue though is that if you don't have um the specified children in the specified time is that you have to pay back at least some amount of the principal and the interest. So the this kind of arrangement kind of puts you into a doubly evil situation where you're essentially selling a claim or exchanging a claim against your reproductive faculties for a loan um, and if you don't fulfill that obligation, then you have to pay a usurious, pay back a usurious loan. So, thinking about usury, I think, helps reveal um, the kind of uh, bizarre evil in that type of arrangement. So, that is all I have for today. If you have any questions, uh, concerns, or thoughts, you know, leave them in the comments below or, you know, email me and we can continue the conversation. But I appreciate you chatting or listening to me today. And 